The sermon text for today is Philippians chapter 1, verses 18b through 26, and you can find this passage on page 1784, 1784 in the Pew Bible, 1784. Listen as I read God's word. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Here ends the reading. Let's pray together. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Jesus, this morning we do believe that in you we lack no good thing. We thank you, Lord, that you are a refuge, that you are a place we can turn to in times of trouble, that you are a place we can turn to in times of uncertainty or disappointment. We thank you, Lord, that you have so generously and abundantly provided for all of our needs, especially the needs you've provided for in your son Jesus. And Lord, as we reflect on his life here today and as we look at this passage, we want to join the chorus of Psalm 34 and glorify you. We want to exalt you. So Jesus, we lift your name up here this morning. And we ask that you would help us to leave here changed people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the years of my pastoral ministry, I've had the chance to take place, uh, to take part in a number of different funerals. And one of those I did recently was for someone who was 94 years old. And a couple of years back, I was able to participate in the funeral of a one-month-old. So almost 100 years worth of difference in the ages of those people. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that 
Funerals, no matter what age the person is who dies, funerals are always a reminder of how uncertain life is. Funerals always remind us that nothing is guaranteed. And it's not just funerals that do this to us either. There's plenty of other things that we would experience and encounter in our day-to-day lives that can sometimes punch us in the gut and can remind us in maybe some uh, really disappointing or hurtful ways that life is uncertain. A global pandemic is one of those things. <laughs> it completely changed the landscape of the world in an instant. Uh, things like natural disasters, which here in Minnesota would be uh, strong thunderstorms, uh, strong winds that knock down trees, blizzards. Uh, you may experience something like a natural disaster or a house fire or something that can take away everything you own in just a matter of moments. And it reminds you that nothing is certain, that everything you have can be taken from you at virtually any time. It may be an accident that leaves you or someone you love uh, permanently disfigured, uh, physically handicapped in some way, emotionally or psychologically handicapped in some way. It may be a stroke, it may be heart attack, it may be cancer. It may be that you are suddenly or unexpectedly laid off from your job. It may be that you have wanted to raise a family and you find yourself walking through the pain of infertility. It may be that a close family member or friend of yours who you love dearly, who you have a very close relationship with, tells you, I'm taking a new position in my company and they're moving us across the country. And you know that your relationship with them is just not ever going to be the same anymore. And these things and many, many other things we would experience all remind us that there is nothing in life that is guaranteed. There's so much uncertainty. And that's just the reality. The reality is that we're guaranteed nothing. And that's not to be, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm not trying to be a wet blanket. I'm just naming reality that uncertainty faces us around every single corner. In the passage that we're looking at here today, we find the Apostle Paul is facing a great deal of uncertainty about his future. He's under house arrest in the city of Rome. He is awaiting his trial and he's awaiting his sentencing. And the sentencing may come back, that he is released from prison. It may be that he is executed and his life will be ended. He doesn't know. And so he's facing this uncertainty. And as we, uh, as we look at these words from the pen of Paul here, what we see is we get something of a window into how he faced, how he navigated the uncertainty that lay before him. Now for him, this was a known uncertainty. He was in a situation, he was uncertain of the outcome, and, and so as we look at this passage, we get something of a template. We can learn something, we can, um, we can get something of a window into how he faced this, and we can discover a template for how we too can face the uncertainties that we encounter. But also, not just the ones that we know are there, we're facing a situation that is, that's uncertain, we know that it's uncertain, but we'll be faced with uncertainties in the future that we can't even imagine right now. And so this passage not only provides us with uh, the tools, with the template to be able to face uncertainties that we know exist, but also to prepare us for the times when we unexpectedly face uncertainties that we simply didn't know were coming. And so the question that we're going to sort of ponder together today is how do we navigate the uncertainties that we face in life? So first, what this passage shows us is that we navigate the uncertainties of life with open-handedness towards what we cannot know. We face uncertainty with a kind of open-handedness, with a kind of surrender to the things that we simply cannot know. 
Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul here seems pretty certain of something. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And yet, uh, the key word for us to sort of zoom in on here is the word deliverance. This is a very important word, and it sheds some light on, as we look at this word, as we look at just what Paul says in this passage, it sheds some light on sort of his open-handedness towards the things that he simply doesn't know. So this word here that's translated deliverance, this is a very important word. Uh, In the New Testament, it can be translated uh, deliverance, like it is here, talking about a kind of circumstantial deliverance from a a specific set of uh, circumstances. But it's also the Greek word that's translated throughout the entire New Testament as salvation. There's one Greek word that means deliverance, it means salvation. And so kind of the million dollar question for us is, well, which one is he talking about? How should we understand this word? Is Paul saying, I'm certain that I will be released from my prison in Rome? Or is he saying, I'm certain that whatever happens to me, God is going to use it for my ultimate good and salvation. I think there's the ambiguity that's here is put there on purpose. I think Paul is doing this on purpose. So just look at the way that he talks about his future in this passage. So in these first verses that I just read a moment ago, we see him saying, I know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation, whatever that means. Then at the end of the passage, He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, so convinced that I'm going to be alive, convinced that God has something more in store for me, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So it seems like at the beginning of this passage and at the end of the passage, he's demonstrating an incredible amount of confidence that he's going to be released and delivered from his imprisonment. But then sandwiched in the middle of all that is these verses that so many of us are familiar with. And it seems like Paul's kind of talking in circles. It seems like he's sort of flopping back and forth here. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's saying, I could live, or I could die. But no matter what the case is, Christ is going to be exalted in my body. He goes on to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So we hear Paul sort of, uh, he's, he, we hear his him wrestling with his desires. He's wrestling with, I desire more than anything to depart and go be with Christ. That is by far better. And he's also saying, I desire to stay here with you because I'm convinced that God has something in store for us, for me, for you. And so his desire is to see them grow in their faith. His desire is to uh, see their joy increased to see the fruitfulness of their church increased. So he desires to depart and be with Christ. He desires to, uh, to help them grow and lead to the progress of their faith. But then he's saying, I could live or I could die. Now the word here, it's a very important word. He says in verse 23, he says, I'm torn between these two. 
We see him wrestling with these desires, but what he's not doing is he's not wrestling with a choice he has to make. He's not saying, you know, well, I would rather just die, but I'm going to choose to stay alive for you instead. No, the word that's translated, uh, torn between the two, is a word that describes something that's influenced by outside forces. So in English, we may say, I feel like I'm being pulled in two different directions. That's the idea here. Paul is not wrestling through a decision he has to make. He's not the one who gets to decide whether he lives or dies. That's the Roman government who gets to decide that. So Paul doesn't have any amount of guarantee, even if he has a hunch that God is not done with him yet, he has no guarantee that that is going to turn out for him being delivered. So we see him sort of going back and forth between these things saying, I know this is going to work out for my deliverance. I know it's going to work out for my salvation. I'm convinced that God isn't done with me yet. And yet to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Christ will be exalted in my body whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead. And so we see him sort of wrestling through all of this together. And we see him demonstrating some amount of uncertainty. He's demonstrating a kind of open-handedness, a kind of surrender to something that he simply cannot know. I'll be honest with you, uh, it kind of bothered me, this whole ambiguity about, you know, whether is is this salvation, is this deliverance, I wanted to know the answer to that. I really wanted to sort of get down and say, well, I can say with confidence, this this is the thing that he's saying. And I think the ambiguity here is the point. That's exactly the point. Paul's sort of talking in circles here. He's convinced that God is going to use these circumstances for something, These circumstances will lead to his deliverance. These circumstances will lead to his ultimate salvation and sort of a promotion as he gets to enter the presence of Christ. He's convinced that God is going to do something and yet he's open-handed with it. He's facing these circumstances saying, I could live or I could die. I'm pretty sure that God has something in store for me, but it's ultimately not my decision. And so he's demonstrating a kind of open-handedness, a kind of surrender to the things that he simply cannot know. Facing uncertainty with an open-handedness like this, facing uncertainty with a kind of surrender like this, this brings an incredible amount of freedom. Do you notice the freedom that Paul is, <laughs> is expressing here? If Paul is released from prison, he wins. If Paul is executed and goes to be with Christ, he wins. So in other words, there is no situation where Paul is not delivered Whatever happens to him, whether he lives, whether he dies, he still experiences the deliverance of God in his life. It may look different, but he's convinced that no matter what happens, he is going to experience the deliverance of God. And friends, we can have that same kind of freedom, that same kind of confidence when we face situations that are uncertain, situations that are difficult. We can have that same kind of freedom. And that freedom only comes when we have a clear picture of who God is. Okay, Paul here is not sort of resigning himself to the whims of the universe. Just saying, well, I don't really know what's going to happen, but you know, the universe will all work it out. No, he's submitting himself to the God who he knows loves him. And so it's when we get a clear picture of who God is that we can have this kind of open-handedness, this kind of surrender, not just to a set of circumstances, we surrender ourselves to God himself. So we navigate this uncertainty of life with open-handedness to what we cannot know, but secondly, we navigate the uncertainties of life with certainty in the things that we do know to be true. 
So even in the midst of all the uncertainty that Paul is facing, there are still things that he is absolutely certain of. That in the midst of the unknowns of his situation, he still has certainty in some things. There's something he knows to be true. And that's the same with us as well. We can have that same assurance, that same confidence. What he knows to be true is that God is able to take whatever circumstances he faces and make them turn out for his ultimate good. He knows that God can take these circumstances and make them turn out for his ultimate salvation, whatever that turns out to be in the end. Now, if you've been around Elmwood for a while, you know that you've, you've heard uh, Matt or I talk regularly about something called hyperlinks. Okay? This is where biblical authors use a word or a phrase that's designed to draw your minds to another part of Scripture. Okay? It's like if you go on a Wikipedia page and half the words are blue, and if you click on them, it takes you to a different page that gives more information that helps you understand what this thing is that you're trying to understand on this page. And the biblical authors are masters at this. There's so many little hyperlinks and so many of these little connections that exist. And one of them that exists in this text is there's two words that Paul uses here that are an allusion to Psalm 34. Okay, the two words that Paul uses here are uh, uh, ashamed and exalted. So before I I read part of Psalm 34 and and sort of unpack this a little bit more, let me just give you a little bit of the context of uh, the events that led to the writing of Psalm 34 in the first place. So it's a psalm written by David. And what happened was in the book of 1 Samuel, we read about David uh, is just a shepherd boy. Saul is anointed as the king over the nation of Israel, except Saul does what is right in his own eyes. Saul disobeys the instruction of the Lord, and so God disowns him as king, although he's still functioning as king at the time. In place of Saul, God anoints David, this little shepherd boy, to be the next king over Israel. And as you can imagine, uh, Saul is not terribly happy about this. Saul is not thrilled that there's this little shepherd boy who's the real king while he's just sort of this puppet king over the people. And so what Saul does is throughout the course of the book of 1 Samuel, we see Saul intentionally time after time after time trying to kill David. And he's not like secretive about this or anything. Okay, he's right out in the open about this. He's trying to kill David. And so on numerous occasions, you see David, he's running, he's fleeing to, he's fleeing to the hill country. He's fleeing to the desert. He's fleeing to, uh, to stay inside of a cave and hide out. And the events of Psalm 34 tell us about David when he flees from Saul and he goes to a city in the Philistine country. And what happens there is he shows up in this Philistine city and they look at him and they say, hey, you look kind of familiar. If, you're, if you know the story of uh, David's life, you know David was the one who killed Goliath who was a Philistine. And so all these Philistines are in the city of Gath and they're like, hey, uh, you look kind of familiar. Aren't you the guy that killed our mighty warrior Goliath? Aren't you the one about whom they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands? Aren't you that guy? And he pretends to be insane. That's what he does. He pretends to be crazy. And he lets the drool run down his beard and and he acts like he's a mad person. And because he does that, then they say, okay, well, surely this valiant warrior Goliath wasn't killed by this guy. So he gets away from them. He's spared because he pretends to be crazy. So he's spared from the Philistines. He's also spared from, he also escapes from Saul as well. So in that psalm, he's, he's writing this as a response to these situations, and he's telling about the deliverance that God has provided for him. So listen 
as I read a few verses from Psalm 34, starting in verse 3. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their names from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. So Paul here is using language that hyperlinks us, that should draw us back to, draw our attention back to the book of Psalms in Psalm 34, which is a psalm telling about God's deliverance of his, of his people. And so the words that are important for us to see here, uh, the word glorify that's used in Psalm 34 is the same word for uh, exalted in Philippians. And the same word for shame is used, uh, those who are never put to shame, I'll never be ashamed. So Paul uses these same words, and I think what he's doing is he's cluing us into how he's understanding God in the midst of this deliverance. So Paul has spent a long time meditating on Psalm 34. And Psalm 34, as it tells about God hearing and answering the prayers of his people, delivering his people out of all their troubles, as a result of that deliverance, God's people extolling him, exalting him, glorifying his name. Paul has seen this pattern from Psalm 34, and as he talks about his deliverance, I don't think it's a surprise that he uses this language to remind us and and to draw our minds back to a psalm in the Old Testament where God delivered his people out of their troubles. And so Saul is, Paul here rather is, he's meditated on Psalm 34, and it's shaped his view of God. From Psalm 34, he knows that God is a God who hears the cries of his people, and delivers them. He knows that those who put their trust in him, those who take refuge in him, will never be ashamed, will never be put to shame. They will never be condemned. He knows that when we are delivered by God, that it results in us extolling, exalting, glorifying, and praising, and worshiping him. So Paul is using this language, I think, to tell us something about where he understands, how he understands the deliverance of God. He learned about the deliverance of God from places like Psalm 34. In the face of uncertainty, Paul is certain of this, that God can take and God will take his circumstances and make them turn out for his deliverance, for his salvation. And again, we come to the ambiguity of the word here. I think what Paul knows here, what he's doing by using this language is he saying, I, I, I know about the deliverance of God. I know that God can deliver me circumstantially just like he delivered David back in Psalm 34. That's what kind of God he is. I know he can do that for me. And at the very same time, Paul also knows that in Jesus, 
God has already provided a greater deliverance than even David experienced in those events that were recorded after Psalm, in Psalm 34. So Paul knows whether he's delivered circumstantially or whether it's just the deliverance he gets in Christ, God will provide for his ultimate deliverance. And so I think the point here is that because Paul knows the character of God, it didn't matter which deliverance he got. Paul could get whatever deliverance. He could get the circumstantial deliverance, and he would say, great, praise God, I'm going to continue in fruitful labor. I'm going to continue working for the progress, the advancement of the gospel, great. And that would be a success for him. That would be a win. And he also says, if I am executed, if I die, that's also a win. So there is no circumstance here where Paul is not delivered. And I think that Paul's, uh, Paul's mentality here is because he knows the character of God, it doesn't matter which deliverance he gets. And so in the face of all the uncertainty, we see him demonstrating both an open-handedness, saying, okay, I could live or die. And at the same time, he's also saying, I have certainty in, in what I do know, that he is the kind of God who can deliver me circumstantially. He's the kind of God who, even if he doesn't deliver me circumstantially, has already provided for my greatest needs in the person of Jesus. So either, either way, no matter what kind of salvation, no matter what kind of deliverance Paul gets, he wins in the end. And this is also true of us as well who trust in Christ. We can also, because we have the recorded testimony of the life and the ministry of Jesus, we also can have certainty in what we do know to be true about who God is. And we see that clearly in the person of Jesus, where we see that in Jesus, God has provided for our greatest, deepest needs. And if we get circumstantial deliverance, that's great. If we don't get circumstantial deliverance, that's great too. Because in Jesus, we have already been given whatever we need. And so whatever uncertainty may face us and whatever bad thing may come from that uncertainty, what's already settled for us in the cross is that God loves us and God is for us. And so what that means is we face our uncertainties and the potential bad things that come in those uncertainties and we say, okay, sure, there may be bad things that come my way, but what I know is that those bad things, that the negative things I may experience in the future, those things cannot mean that God has stopped loving me. Those things can't mean that God has abandoned me. Those things can't mean that God has rejected me because in the person of Jesus, that's already been settled. It's already been settled in the person of Jesus that God loves you, that God is for you, that he will do whatever it takes, the lengths to which you'll go to accomplish our deliverance and our salvation, that's clear in the person of Jesus. And so we can face all of those uncertainties with open-handedness as well as with a kind of certainty for the things we do know to be true. He is a God who can and will give us the ultimate deliverance that we need. Sometimes that's the kind of deliverance we want. Sometimes it's not. But even in the midst of that, we can still trust him because we know what kind of God he is. So we navigate uncertainty with open-handedness towards what we cannot know, with certainty towards what we do know. And lastly, we navigate the uncertainties of life with expectation for our reunion with Christ. You can hear very clearly the hope-filled longing and expectation of Paul. 
when he says for, to me, to live is Christ. Meaning if I'm going to stay alive, it's going to be in fruitful service and labor for Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So we know his heart's desire is ultimately to be in the presence of Christ. And everything in Paul's life was oriented towards, was directed towards that end. Everything in his life was oriented towards the end of being present with Christ. That shaped his desires, it shaped his actions, it shaped his relationships, it shaped his plans. It shaped everything about who Paul was, his desire to be in the presence of Christ, to meet his creator, to meet his redeemer. And this ought to be the same kind of longing and expectation and desire that we have as followers of Jesus. Because we have the same, we have the same God that Paul did. Here's what I think. I think that when we do finally end up in the presence of Christ, I think we're probably going to realize that our walk with him here and now, that the relationship we get to experience with Christ now, was something like groping around in a dark room. A room where there's maybe like a, a teeny tiny little, uh, what do you call that? A little night light in the corner. Very dim. You can just see enough of the room to see where the dresser is or where the bed is or where the couch is. But everything is kind of black. Everything is sort of muddied. Everything is sort of in shadows. And as you're trying to walk about, you're, you're straining your eyes just to try and see something of it. You can't see any detail, that's for sure. And I think that when we get into the presence of Christ, what we're going to realize is how much of our experience of being with him now is like that groping around in a dark room. Where I think we'll be able to look back over everything that we know to be true about God that we've learned in the Bible. Where we see the history of God's working with his people to bring about their redemption and their salvation. And we see the, the mercy and the compassion and the long-suffering and the patience. And we see the justice and we see the beauty and we see all of those things we see about God that we, that we see with so much clarity now. I think that when we get in the presence of Christ, we're going to realize it becomes even clearer. And, and what I experienced, as incredible as it was, was just a shadow of the real thing of being in the presence of Christ. I think likewise, as we look at our own circumstances, and as you reflect on your own life, and as you see the myriad of ways that God has loved you, the ways that God has cared for you, the ways that God has protected you and provided for you, the ways that God has showered you with abundance and goodness that you may not be aware of, that you may not have ever given thanks for. When you see his presence with you along your journey through all those difficulties, through all the challenges, as well as through all the good things, and because he's been there with you, he's so precious to you, when you get into his presence, you will realize that what I experienced, as amazing as it was, was just this tiny little shadow of the real thing. And it gets even clearer. And as we look at the cross, 
as we look at the cross, which is the thing that as followers of Jesus, we have built our lives around. We believe that the work of Christ on the cross is so important, so significant. We believe that Jesus is so compelling that we're willing to reorient every aspect of our lives around him, around relationship with him, around serving him, around loving him. And as we look at the cross of Jesus and we see how much God loves us, the lengths to which he's willing to go to bring about our salvation, and our hearts are stirred by that and they're warmed by that, and our affections grow for him, at the end of a hundred years of living that way, getting into the presence of Christ, we'll realize we knew nothing. We knew nothing of how good it actually was. And this is, this is I think, the, the expectation, the longing that Paul has here is that he's, he knows the goodness of God. He knows the Bible. He knows all of that. He's seen God's presence with him. And in spite of everything he's seen about who God is, in spite of everything that has stirred his affections for Christ, in spite of all of that, he says, I long to be with him. That's far better. Because he knows that something is coming that is even far better than what he gets to experience now. And so in the face of uncertainty, Paul lives with expectation for his reunion with Christ. And we get to live with the same expectation. We get to live with the same longing to be in the presence of Christ. One of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we practice that or demonstrate that longing to be with him is what we do here each Sunday. We come to the communion table. In a way, the communion table where we take the body and bread of Christ and we receive them and we're nourished by them, as we physically stand up out of our seats and demonstrate our faithfulness to Jesus, saying, I'm here, I trust you, I receive you. As we do that every single week, we're, we're rehearsing. We're rehearsing the story of the gospel. We're rehearsing what it's going to be like one day when we sit down and share a meal with Christ. When we experience the wedding feast of the Lamb, is what it says in the book of Revelation. And so we get to practice that. And as we do that, it stirs, it, it, it continues to shape us and mold us into people who love him more. And so this meal that we get to partake in here this morning and we do each Sunday is a kind of preparation for the day when we get to meet Christ. And the, the kind of intimacy where we take something physical and it becomes a part of us physically. The connectedness that we have with Christ in his presence is far greater and far deeper than even ingesting that food into our bellies and it becomes a part of our body. And one day we will see that his mercy runs deeper, his patience runs longer, his love is far more constant than we had ever thought or dreamed or imagined. And so we get to live with expectation for our reunion with Christ. As we come to the communion table today and as we uh, rehearse that story, as we live with that anticipation, uh, we come with gladness. We come with joy to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus. And we also come here recognizing how miserably we fail so often. And so as we come to the communion table today, I'd like to leave a few moments for you to uh, have some time of quiet reflection and confession before the Lord.
Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in deed and in word. We've sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We ask, Lord, in your mercy that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.